Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming tonight. My name is Amy. Um, it's very nice to have someone here that I don't know. <laughs> I hope I do this talk, to, talk justice. Uh, before I start, I just wanted to say that I have a deep admiration for philosophy, but I also have a love of words. I believe words carry great weight. It is with grace that we acknowledge the Yulakut Willem, the traditional custodians of this land. It's a privilege to be here, and I extend my respects to the land, the ancestors, and the elders of Yulakut Willem, past, present, and future. So welcome to M Pavilion, and thanks for coming. Tonight's talk will serve as an introduction to the Flatpak Philosophy Circle. It's a project that I've had bobbling around in the back of my mind for a little while, so it's going to be great to be able to introduce some of the concepts here tonight and see how they um, pass over. At the moment, it's a fairly conceptual project, but I would really like your input. If you're on Twitter, I've set up an account at Flatpak, no A's, F-L-T-P-C-K, hashtag F-L-T-P-C-K, if you'd like to contribute any ideas. The Flatpak Philosophy Circle is a project with an aim of creating a safe, shared, public space for philosophy. The circle will combine contemporary principles of accessible open source, and des open source design with critical thinking. Here, there is no ownership, no self, no opinion, only a love of wisdom. There is also no test. Wisdom need not be attained, but it must be the goal. So whether your interest is in spatial design, furniture design, the theory of knowledge, or empathy, your ideas are welcome. The circle is an experiment in small publics, not dissimilar in intent to the collective dynamic of the amphitheatre, just without the gladiators and the animal slaughter. The Flatpak Philosophy Circle should bring people together but be agile, portable and easy to replicate and improve and alter and with room for vastly different results. The circle should exist outside state-made rules and regulations that control what should be public space, while also providing necessary protections for the singular private body. Now, the genesis of the idea is wholly selfish. I've not long returned from London, where I was studying postgraduate continental philosophy. I went with the full-blown philosophy fantasy. I had high hopes for mind-blowing conversation. I'm afraid to say I didn't find what I was looking for. I wondered at the time... Were the desks disrupting our flow? Was the fluorescent bar lighting too austere? Were our laptops a barrier or perhaps a shield for the uncomfortable, sanitised formality of the classroom? So the circle, as a shape, has precedence. Alcoholics Anonymous, group therapy. On TV, we're shown its potential to elicit vulnerability in the most hardened men. Here, people can admit fallibility and ask for help. But contemporary culture aside, there is all of about nothing new in this idea that it's a space in which stuff can happen. Aboriginal elders still sit in circles, 
officially for law, unofficially and casually for yarns. Progressive primary schools introduce children to yarning circles and encourage open conversation, not only teaching kids how to speak in a group, but more importantly, how to listen. So I would stop here and presume the project redundant, were it not for the fact that I, for one, cannot sit on the ground cross-legged <laughs> for more than five minutes without going numb. I may crave a closer connection with the earth, but a circle that requires people to get down on the ground on grubby city streets, bad knees, hips, pencil skirts all proving a challenge. In reality, we'd preclude too many. So given our manufactured environment, we need a manufactured solution. While we're tampering, let's tamper to an end. Over time, I've grown wary of the meddling potential of politics, and I've gone looking for alternatives. Increasingly, I've landed in philosophical territory, finding insight in the philosophers and players operating outside organised existing structures. Anyone who's known me for a long time will know I wanted to believe in politics, but politics as it is, is broken. Politics now is absolute, or as capitalism's lapdog, neutered. It has teeth, but it lacks balls. You choose a position and occupy it. It's politically necessary to commit to one over the other or over all others. This political rigidity is counterintuitive to the organism. Politics silences uncertainty when we should be allowed at all times to ask the question. It's uncertainty that allows us to remain agile and adapt to the shifting landscape around us. We should remember that people, communities and the needs of the populace are organic and ever-changing. The beauty of philosophy isn't in the knowing, but in the process of acquiring knowledge. In an age of answers, of just Google it, philosophy prioritises the gap where, if we sit for a time, we experience an osmosis between our conscious and unconscious selves. A love of wisdom is about asking uncomfortable questions, providing a safe space for not knowing the answer, and resisting the temptation to fill the awkward pause. The dialectical, a term used in formal philosophical study to describe a way of thinking, really just means two-way. It's a useful communication tool with a slow, tick-tacking forward propulsion a type of progress that's impossible in modern politics, which on account of commitment instead demands finality and elevates individual ego, opinion and belief above collaborative processes. Similarly, while the individual publishing potential brought about by personal distributed wireless technologies is remarkable, my ego and your ego are probably wasting the opportunity on self-styled promotional assertions and virtual assignations. We're left with a need for something more human, something that promotes questions rather than answers, something that asks for more than mere eyeballs. 
as is too often seen in the political and online space, without a human presence, grace, humility and empathy are absent. I recently heard a British writer and philosopher, Kenan Malik, on Radio National speaking from the Byron Writers' Festival on an absence of and yearning for what he calls ethical concrete. He attributes its absence not only to a past loss of faith in God, but a present loss of faith in human beings. I'll quote from his talk. We've lost faith in our own capacity to think through our problems, to define through discussion and dialogue what is right and wrong. And it seems to me that the loss of faith in human beings is far more critical than the loss of faith in God. It is the loss of faith in human beings that makes it seem as if there is nothing there for us to turn to when we can't decide what we should do. We've lost faith in our own capacity, not just as individuals, but collectively to make decisions. End quote. Without an appropriate space or place to talk, we're unpracticed at genuine engagement. We lack perspective on the other, on alternatives, and we're unable to face our own chasms of perception. In which case, given a noisy, pre-packaged, ready-made conviction, we might be inclined to cling to it. No questions asked. Polarisation and populism make sense in this context. Now, I'm not claiming a solution to those big P problems in one small little project, but I would like to see a space for a renewed humanity that just looks a little different to the spaces that we've come across before. So picture pews and an altar, seats and a lectern, an audience and a stage. These structures promote one person to a position of importance. And while there are people who are worthy of the title teacher, sage, who may have wise, thoughtful things to say, what happens when not? The platform, by design, has unleashed a right to posture and broadcast unchecked, unexamined opinion. We can't reverse this effect by simply deplatforming individuals. It won't redress the dichotomy of for and against, left versus right, good versus evil, Australian versus un-Australian. We just have to shatter this platform and engage on a different plane. But am I naive to see potential in design? Or the question could be, am I naive to see potential in people, period? I imagine that here I'm at least among people who recognise a connection between behaviour and design. So, could the circle make its contribution? I put the question of this new space to you because to realise the project requires collaboration. I'm not a designer, I don't use CAD, I don't know much about lightweight materials, load-bearing materials, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not even a real philosopher. Sorry. I just like thinking and talking. So here's how an early chat on the circle played out with my friend Clayton. I said, let's say it will be a democratisation of the form, 
fully portable, cheap and open source, taking the best of what IKEA introduced to the world and turning it into something useful, furniture for everyone. He said, so is it about sharing, writing, critique and ideas? I said, kind of, but it's kind of not about anything. It's about space, a small agora. He said, what's a small agora? I said, or oh, more likely, it's akin to AA. He said, my name is Clayton and I like Hegel. Me, yeah, but a bit more street. Him, yo, Clayton here. Wittgenstein gets me every time. Me, no, no name dropping. I hate name dropping. Him, my name is Clayton. Why did we make God? And I thought, good, he gets it. It might just be a thing. I love questions like what was the first God and what did it do? And what I'd like to know is, what is the last question? Is it always, well, what's the meaning of life? Mine is a punk philosophy. There's a reason I didn't graduate. The regulation and rules, the canon, even the prescribed reading outside the canon, which created a new canon of non-canonical texts one must read, didn't sit right with me. And there I come up against a paradox. I totally get rules. I get that they can be necessary. I even like some rules. I can't help myself but follow the rules and find myself wishing others would do so more often so that this thing we called life is more pleasant. But then, when I've travelled to places in Asia, Africa and southern Europe, more organic, less regulated, I see humanity spring from the streets and I mourn what we've lost in footpaths, lanes, health and safety regulations. I do realise there's a risk of romanticising what for others might be born from necessity, but surely there is something we can learn from a thriving, energetic frenzy of interactivity. I love spaces that are borderline, public, private, like footpaths, air-conditioned office lobbies, roads and car parks. I love the way in places with large populations, their boundaries are infringed. I cherish public space and I make sure to spend time in public spaces lest they might take them away. But I often find I'd like a greater variety and flexibility of options for embodying that space. The single unfixed green seats in the Paris Jardin de Luxembourg are a perfect example. They are always on the move, positioned in groups both big and intimate, moved into the shade in summer, moved into the sun in winter. They are rearranged for games of chess, cards and impromptu performances. Having said that, perhaps the bike share experiment proves we can't be trusted with furniture that's unfixed, lest it all wind up in the Yarra. So for now, I'll opt for the occasional park bench or tiered stepped seating and, despite being in public, remain mainly in solitude. Whether sitting in Federation Square or on the lawn in front of the State Library, I do so with others, flanked, blinkered, and while there is value in simply sitting and enjoying the sun or looking at a blade of grass, what if I were to want more from idle time? Sure, I could talk to someone at random. Others do, but we have a name for that, for them. Is it only the unwashed who want for conversation? 
Have we resigned our gloriously inefficiently, if inefficient thinking selves to the system? Are we so owned that we have nothing left to give for free? This is where I get to the nub of why the flat pack philosophy circle might be important. I work, we work. And despite them telling us that all our jobs will soon be gobbled up by robots, we're working more than is good for ourselves. Even when we don't work, oh, sorry, even when we don't have a job, we work. Capitalism requires it. We work at finding a job, we work at justifying a jobless existence. It's time consuming and exhausting. Capitalism requires efficiency and production. But the more efficient and productive you are, the less relevant you become, and the harder you have to work at being efficient and productive. It's a great myth that there is any such thing as getting ahead with a view to taking a break. The notion you might want to work on your own humanity or improve and nourish our human communities goes completely unrecognised. So as a people, we can't and don't progress. Having said that, I'm not convinced I'm really doing this with some deluded notion of any greater good. It simply satiates me to think about it. So there's that. Then maybe there's a handful of people who'll find it entertaining for five minutes. For lovers of philosophy, maybe five minutes more. But at its most basic, what is it? What am I suggesting? Well, motivated by my minimal skill set and inspired by the cunning of spontaneous street food vendors in Hong Kong and Kuala Lumpur, a quick search on Alibaba delivers numerous results for plastic stools, a solution that can't be beat for price and scalability. Add to that a length of rope and even I can fashion some kind of fastening to loop the stools together for easy portability. So, for absolutely no skills, a quick trip to Footscray, and for less than $30, this is the bar. It's a very low bar. And I implore a designer to do better. When I picture the flat pack philosophy circle, it's a little more sophisticated. I originally considered flat pack a possible solution, drawing parallels in experience between your first furniture purchase and philosophy 101. Flat pack version 1.0 took the two-dimensional plane and challenged the general populace to realise a third dimension. Shipping and cost-cutting convenience was swallowed as a problem-solving rite of passage by a mass audience eager to see their fruits of labour. Of course, <laughs> no-one likes to talk about the broken relationships left in its wake. So now I'm leaning towards something mechanical, modular, something that in my mind looks simultaneously mid-century modern, but titanium tough, lightweight, yet high-tech. <laughs> 
It unfolds at the touch of a button from something the size of a briefcase, or it can be deployed by pulling a concealed cord in my backpack. And I think when we can 3D print bridges and buildings, couldn't we take this technology and marry it with one of the oldest arts? Maybe. But you may well still be asking, what's the point and where's the philosophy? So here's another conversation, this time with Damon after sending him the first draft of this presentation. I said, I hope it's kind of interesting, that maybe someone might find it interesting. He said, well, you'll need to get rid of the no self, no opinion line early on. That's ridiculous. Me, ridiculous because it could never happen? Him, no self, that's enlightenment, baby, good luck. Me, okay, but no opinion is all right, isn't it? Him, well, how the fuck are you going to interact if you don't have an opinion? Which raises the question, how do you get people to engage philosophically? What happens to opinion? What about bullies and bullying? How much behaviour can the circle itself really hope to shape? Does the circle require a moderator? Should the circle operate as a public service attaché to a philosophy professorship? And at what point does answering a question with another question simply become annoying, throwing us back onto terra familiar, like GOT, season seven, blah, 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 blah. It might just be that the philosophically inclined among us must take the initiative and step out into the world to offer this Socratic service. Like the guy who simply wanted more hugs, free philosophy could at least get us some ethical action. Essentially, I want to create a space where we can dial down the melodrama and engage with the wisdom itself. The wisdom of uncertainty, the wisdom of inquiry, and the wisdom of possibility. Whether we start with a philosophical tenet and draw on it in a way that helps us understand something we've experienced, witnessed, or misunderstood in day-to-day -day life, or we start with a problem and unravel it using a philosophical framework is open to debate. The most important thing is that we give ideas time to breathe before we all get our knickers in a knot. We need to give people the opportunity to realise that some of the opinions they hold dear are not necessarily valid at all. It's said that Socrates liked nothing more than to leave a man in egoistic ruin. Now, we can't all hope to employ Socratic irony today so skillfully as to upend and undress he who shouts loudest. But we could model a new way to engage that removes the fuel the media currently provides. Now, I'm going to run the risk of this going pear-shaped <laughs> because, as an example, I'm going to use James Damore, he of Google Memo Infamy. So you may have heard of James Damore and you might know him for his memo, but at 10 pages, I don't know how many people actually read it. You may know him from the media reaction, which was pretty much too much oxygen, too little analysis. You may know him from the counter-reaction, which was that he was courted by crazies on the right who then leveraged the hype for their own agenda. And you may know him from the industrial action that followed. Google sacked him, which nicely played right into his conviction that he was right all along. You may not have heard of this guy at all. 
The story did blow up, but it had all but disappeared in a week too. So instead, you may know some other white, nerdy IT guy. Because let's face it, there are a lot of white, nerdy IT guys. But there are also nerdy Indian IT guys. And after Australia's outsourcing craze of the last decade, there are now just stacks of Indian IT guys, nerdy and otherwise. Like James Damore, it's less likely you know a woman who codes, but they exist. It doesn't follow that because you don't know one, that they don't or won't or couldn't or can't. It's just quite possible they can't be asked. I'm loath to grant him further consideration than is warranted, particularly because he and his paper are plainly unremarkable. But it's an example that highlights how a philosophical approach could temper a reaction that serves to ingrain flawed thinking. The lost opportunity with a guy like this is not to recognise that he is thinking and that he's engaged in something that resembles a thought process. My wish was someone would say, you're thinking, James, but you're wrong. Steering his thinking in the right direction by asking the right questions could even be useful and precipitate change. I vouch for philosophy because I think it has the potential to abstract a person's capacity to have one thought follow another thought from the content of the thoughts and the limits of their individual experience. Subsequently challenged, it can create a distance between a person and their views, which is exactly the space we need to create to live an examined life. The Flatpak Philosophy Circle is just one tool we could use to further that examination. Thank you. Okay, very unprofessional note holding, but um, anyway. Uh, hi, everybody. That was my talk. I hope it made any sense. Um, please do ask me any questions or please feel free to comment. James Damore. How... Most people heard of or remember that story. James, James Day. Oh, you missed it, guys. <laughs> Six. <laughs> um, James Damore. Yes. No. Yes. Google guy. Okay. So James Damore is a fairly classically nerdy-looking white software engineer who was previously employed by Google and while he was employed by Google he wrote and published a 10-page memo detailing why women and some people of colour were less inclined to work in IT, specifically in software engineering. He was writing a critique of the Google in-house uh, diverse, diversity programs. 
he used what he believed to be scientific research and thinking to put a whole range of behaviours and qualities on a spectrum from right to left and also on a spectrum from male to female. Amongst these included things like, you know, women are more collaborative, you know, men are more um, ambitious, you know, really quite broad sweeping statements like that which didn't necessarily follow that just because that may be the case for some women, it may, may not be the case for all women. Uh, he was subsequently fired by Google for publishing this memo, but unfortunately, I think, because of his quite demure public ability to speak outside from behind a screen, the alt-right stepped in and started using him as a poster boy for all of their ideas, which weren't really what it was that he was trying to get at. Um, He's since tried to rectify some of his statements by coming out and revisiting the original intention was that he actually wanted access to some of the diversity programs that were being offered to other people in Google himself, and it was a very misguided way to go about getting um, attention and getting involved in those programs. So I think that if you actually read the 10-page memo, you won't find it to be as outrageous as the 10-word headlines suggested. He is actually employing a series of thinking, um, but it's just pretty dramatically flawed thinking (laughs) that could have been better addressed if someone had actually engaged him on what it was that he wanted to talk about. Um, So that's James Damore. But just being being fired by Google basically gives him the oxygen to now say, I was discriminated against. And I think that that is one of the biggest problems that now there is someone who's, you know, white male privilege doesn't exist, you know, that kind of message yeah yeah so the the counter side of that question is is war natural Do, are men are, are men just a warring people are men and women are, we, are men and women just warring people look i think that there are a lot of uh, cycles that we repeat time and again that do indicate that there's no hope but i take the existentialist view that whilst we are here we have to try and it would be a waste I think of our life and look one of the great world religions does suggest that we live an examined life rather than a life of conflict and um, blind faith so it's not all religions that don't suggest we get some distance between us and our shit Um, So I think that the more people we can have willing to not abandon ideas but to create that distance and allow a conversation uh, will help those of us who happen to be on this planet at any one given time at the same time. Um, Amy, you mentioned 
you raised the question about whether the circle would need a, a moderator or someone to keep things in control and stop things from spiralling um, into uh, violent disagreement. Um, is, there, is that something you'd care to elaborate on and, and what do you think of that? Yeah, thanks. Um, the idea of the moderator came about actually during the same-sex marriage debate. The Ethics Centre in Sydney published a six-point framework about how to have the conversation with someone about the vote who wasn't necessarily voting the way that you agreed with and how to remove that question from the individual's beliefs and look at it look at it as part of our ethical lives so things like looking at the harm principle is probably the most simple example to apply it's just like well what will do what will voting one way do in terms of harming a certain number of people and what will the alternative do um, and I think that the idea then of that framework being available to actually think kindly and logically through a problem made me wonder whether a moderator wouldn't be a good idea. Just someone who could bring things back on track to a framework that sits outside of the emotion or the antagonism of people who may be sitting in the circle at any given time, whether that needs to be an actual person or it could be some other, um, <laughs> I don't know, like an electric shock that comes through the, through the seat of the chair <laughs> when you've gone um, too far in one direction. Um, yeah, most likely a person uh, who will do that. But then I think what people have proven over time is give a, give a person power and that power fairly quickly corrupts. So then there's probably another set of um, rules that need to override moderators and ensure that those moderators are not wielding their stick too, um, too widely or um, that they're you know, doing their job and things like that. So probably one of my favoured um, outcomes would be to lumber philosophy professors with this circle and, you know, say, here you go, all right, you've got a job, lucky you, uh, but now you have to take it to the streets 10 hours a week or something like that and provide this service to people who are needing to inquire on a deeper level around whatever it is, whether it's change the date or SSM or whatever's happening for them at that time. Um. There's something really nicely retro, I think, about the idea of bringing people together physically in this day and age where we've got all these... We've got social media and all these other means of communicating with people all over the world, which you know, had great promise, but it seems like there's a lot of what we're now seeing, a lot of issues with that, the way that it reinforces people's um, way of thinking currently um, and also just... I think you've already raised and talked about the, the way that people then behave is quite different to when they're actually in a group 
physically facing other people, do you think that it's just a human nature requires us to actually have that physical presence to properly engage in a respectful manner? And that's, I guess, part of the, um, the thinking through of your, the thinking of your idea. Yeah, I think that some of it is the physical presence, but of course, physical presence, um, gangs, things, you know, like it can go wrong as well. Like it's not the, the single answer. Um, I think that there is something to be said for the individual having to turn up and back themselves as opposed to knowing that they're part of a pack. Uh, I find that even though the internet is an individualistic act, we have pretty much aligned ourselves in that realm in broad sweeping groups, like we're, we're a member of this camp or that camp. I think when you physically turn up on your own, you have to draw on yourself. And there are always going to be people who are, better able to elucidate themselves um, and so it's not necessarily going to create a completely equal playing field but I think that it's going to be more truthful than an environment where you just aren't accountable for what it is that you actually are saying or thinking. Comment? Yeah, so I want to start with the design. I think that having a prototype to actually um, use and to demonstrate out and about is really important. I also think that once the design is in a position where it can actually within itself regulate some of the behaviour, that will be the point at which it can kind of be ready to go. So I think it's still away from being actually deployed out into the world but um but you know it's something that I plan on doing at some point once I've got the right design uh available yeah yeah so this is the kind of tool that I think is really important to see if there's a way in which things can be introduced into the design itself to regulate people's behaviour. So around, um, you know, bullies, bullies, I just don't have an answer for bullies. I'm not sure what to do. But in terms of um, having equal time and say, it could be that each seat comes with a, a kind of a, you know, now is your time and there's a countdown. So you actually get four minutes or something and then it something clicks off on your seat and it goes to the next seat. So it's kind of like that, um, like you're holding the, you're holding the thing now. <laughs> yeah, the, the conscious, is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, so that, that, that kind of tool, um, I wonder if there's something that can be inbuilt to regulate the time. Bullies, other than the, the physical moderator pres- being present, 
Uh, I think that, you know, maybe... If it was just one bully, I think the group would self-regulate. But if a gang turned up... Like, a ga- I don't mean a gang. I mean a, a group of people. <laughs> a, group of, <laughs> a group of bullies. Yeah, an affiliated group of bullies turned up. Um, yeah, then I think that that would be difficult. It would probably actually not be, in that instance, a true iteration of the circle because you couldn't actually define it as such because it's not meeting the criteria to be a flatpack philosophy circle if it's just being overrun by any one group. Hey, so um, I wonder if you've considered like co-design strategies and ways of creating a shared space through making um, and that could be a way to get people to feel comfortable in a space together rather than like having chairs all set up. There's like a, a, a group of materials or something like that and it's through constructing that space that you get that shared identity. Yeah, so that actually is clo- more closely aligned with the true um, idea of flat pack and that point at which you all kind of look at the instructions and go, oh, holy crap, we're either going to be like best mates at the end of this or we're never going to talk to each other again. I actually do think that that component could do something to create shared, um, like, like kind of a shared ownership. Um, again, I mean, this whole thing is idealistic. Is that, is that just, like, one, one step too far? Uh, I don't know. I'd be really interested to see among probably a more structured group, like if it was a group of school-age people, for example, I think it could really work. But then I'm all for bringing the generations together. Like, if you just had a random kind of age range and people with different skills working on different parts of the circle in order to actually get it up and running, then that could actually um, introduce a better appreciation for the different skills that each of those people have and then make them a little better able to listen to what they each have to say. I think sometimes, particularly particularly intergenerationally, there's too much perception around the value of what someone does or doesn't have to say before they've acknowledged that what they have to say might just be different because it's coming from their unique standpoint and that that in itself is valid. So I think it would be a really nice thing to see. Uh, It would just require more organisation than a spontaneous, um, you know, here's, like, I'm I'm just walking down the street and, oh, I'm just going to pop up my circle here and sit down and see what happens. So, yeah, but I really like the idea, definitely. Anyone else? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I come back... (laughs) When I come back in two weeks (laughs) um, and I start getting some designs, um, uh, yeah, I I do. Like, I want to kind of get it prototyped and then be able to, you know, kind of like this has temporarily landed, or I don't know, I feel like this looked like, looks quite permanent, like it has the look of a permanent structure, even though I know it's not. Um, 
but um, but yeah, just put it down and and go. There is actually a group in Sydney which I also found out about when I was doing the research for this um, this talk called Ignoramus Anonymous. And um, it's a guy, Malcolm Whitaker, who is doing an arts PhD. And um, he's run this group in Marrickville for, I think, about a year where you can just turn up and ask a really dumb question without fear of um, recrimination. Uh, So there's something about that that I thought, well, you know, there's precedence. It was done in a space that was already defined as an art space so that might have shaped the kinds of people that you get coming to that space to then participate in this I'm not sure how it will go out truly in public but um, who knows till you give it a go like him, I think that the outcomes of what it is that people have to say is, to me, ultimately the most interesting thing. I think with that comes this idea that there could be a more manufactured... Like, there's this line between manufacturing the experience and then kind of thinking, well, if I've manufactured it, at what point is that defeating the purpose? Or if it was actually manufactured, could it actually improve the experience like and just just you've just got to like face up sometimes like well I could make this a really good experience if we manufacture it so we actually um, define this circle in this space is going to be about x so if you want to talk about that then come down Um, I think that there is probably value in that and I think that one of the outcomes that I imagine I do find is that something spontaneous is just too arbitrary (laughs) Yeah, no, Ali, <laughs> no, because that's not the last question. Because if you said that to me, I would then just say, well, why? Why would that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you still have to... There's something about that that's really external to you. It's not looking at why is it that we have reached this conclusion. So you would still at that point need to then look at what you've reached in your discussion and say, but why is it that we have reached that conclusion? What is it about us that has put us in this position where we have defined the fact that this is an issue? Um, I just... Sorry? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think if you go back to philosophy and the kind of first principles of philosophy is love of wisdom, I think when you're in that process of going from question to question and analysing it as something that is a standalone piece of knowledge, it's very difficult to... It's very difficult... I don't know what... (laughs) I lost my train of thought. The other sorry. Basically, I just want to think about what you're assuming about the point of simple thing. Yeah. An outcome or solve a problem or anything like that. You're doing it for the sake of doing it. And it's that process that is the point. So there is not actually, it's not like psychology where we're all here to solve a problem. We're actually just setting up a process and a space where we have the time to step back and examine the problem and to enjoy sitting in that space of the examination, because that is the space where we're involved with the, with the wisdom of the subject. Sorry? Oh, God, no. <laughs> yeah, so no, it's open source completely. Like, it's something that someone could do if they were on the other side of the world, if they could just, you know, 3D print or you know, whatever, the design, and then take it out and experiment with it there. So I see it developing in an iterative way, just like um, any kind of open source project might. So if somebody somewhere else does it and they find that there's an improvement to that process, then I'd like that to be shared back within the group so that that can be added to somebody else's design. Any other questions? Oh, well, thanks for coming, everybody, and for listening to my crazy talk. <laughs> I hope you have a nice night. Bye.